Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Wendy McLean, educator at Vitaly. Vitaly is a digital platform, a professional health resource and a distribution service all in one. We specialise in complementary medicines and distribute high quality products from our base in Mascot, Sydney. Today I'm going to be talking about the health impacts of PFAS, a class of manufactured chemicals present in many consumer goods and industrial applications. These chemicals have been linked to hormone disruption and other serious health effects, even at low doses. In this podcast, I will look at the latest research on health impacts, identify methods for assessing PFAS exposure, and discuss ways we can reduce exposure, minimise health impacts, and support recovery and well-being. Hair and polyfluoral alkyl substances, so known as PFASs for short, are a class of synthetic fluorinated chemicals resistant to heat, water and oil. For over 70 years, these chemicals have been used for hundreds of different consumer products and industrial applications, including stain and water-resistant coating for clothing, furniture and carpets, examples of Scotchgard and Gore-Tex, non-stick coatings, Teflon is the best known example, and food packaging, cosmetics, personal care products and firefighting foams. There are over 8,000 of these chemicals that are listed with the US EPA and then uh, more than 600 of these are currently believed to be in commercial use. Perfluorooctane sulfonate or PFOS which is found in Scotchgard and perfluorooctanoic acid so PFOA found in Teflon are the most extensively produced and studied PFAS. They have now been phased out of production in the USA However, large-scale production is still occurring in countries such as China and human exposure remains high worldwide. So why are we so concerned about these chemicals? Firstly, they are extremely persistent. The chemical backbone of PFAS is made of carbon-fluorine bonds, which is the strongest known chemical bond. And as a result, these chemicals are incredibly resistant to environmental degradation earning them the nickname Forever Chemicals. The second reason is their widespread occurrence. Decades of high volume production of PFAS coupled with the environmental persistence of these chemicals have led to widespread contamination of soil, water, air, even in remote areas including Antarctica, and bioaccumulation across entire ecological food chains. The third reason is that they bioaccumulate in humans. So once they are ingested through food or water, they are readily absorbed and they accumulate in the body where they can persist for decades. And global biomonitoring studies have detected these chemicals in nearly 100% of humans studied, with these chemicals detected in blood, the lungs, liver and breast milk. The fourth reason is that these chemicals are linked to an array of health issues, some at very low doses. And lastly, these chemicals are universally detected in the serum of pregnant women, neonates and children worldwide, indicating that exposure is ubiquitous and these chemicals can cross the placenta and influence infant development. So looking now at the health impacts, the long-term health impacts are not well understood due to the vast number of these chemicals and limited toxicology data. 
However, a growing body of evidence from population studies links certain of these chemicals with a variety of um, adverse health effects. The most consistent findings from these studies are increased cholesterol, and that's both in children and infants and at levels that is clinically relevant. Some studies have found associations between PFAS exposure and metabolic effects, including insulin resistance, changes in blood sugar levels, and diabetes. Other effects include elevated liver enzymes, impaired kidney function, and increased uric acid levels. PFAS exposure also has adverse effects on the immune system. Several studies demonstrate an association between prenatal exposure to PFAS and reduced vaccine responses, increased risk of childhood infections and allergies, suggesting that these chemicals cause immunosuppression. They've also been shown to affect vaccine efficacy and antibody response in adults, including to the flu vaccine. And currently, um, there is concern over PFAS exposure and the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines which are being rolled out. And this is an area that is currently being researched by the US Centre for Disease Control. They're looking at uh, PFAS serum levels in first-line defenders, so people who are exposed to high levels of these chemicals and their response to the COVID-19 vaccine. These chemicals are non-endocrine disruptors. They've been linked with thyroid disease and impaired thyroid hormone levels, as well as male and female infertility. Other reproductive effects include increased risk of PCOS, um, a delay in the onset of menstruation, and early menopause up to two years. And the US EPA has concluded that two of these chemicals, so PFOA, and PFOS are possibly carcinogenic to humans and there's been an increases in certain types of cancer in areas where there has been exposure to these chemicals and these cancers include prostate, kidney and testicular. There are certain populations that are more vulnerable to the effects of PFAS. One of these groups are fetuses, infants and children. They have a greater level of exposure and they're also more vulnerable biologically to the effects of these chemicals than adults. Uh, this is because they get early life exposure. These chemicals cross the placenta, um, and then they also are transferred through the breast milk. And health effects from early life exposure include decreased birth weight, decreased immune responses, and hormonal and me metabolic effects in later life. And in the mother, PFAS exposure is associated with an increased risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension or preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. The adverse health effects of these chemicals are related to their unique toxicokinetic properties. That is, the way in which they are absorbed, metabolised and excreted from the body. These chemicals are readily absorbed after oral consumption and then they bind to proteins in the blood where they're transported around the body. They're not metabolised or transformed in the body and they accumulate in the blood serum, kidneys, liver and lungs. They are primarily eliminated in urine with smaller amounts in faeces and breast milk. However, they bioaccumulate in the body because they attach to bile and they continuously recycle from the intestines to the liver in a process that's known as enterohepatic recirculation. And it's believed um, partly because of this process 
some of these chemicals have very long half-lives in the body, which can range from two to nine years, meaning that they can last in the body for decades. The mechanisms of action by which PFAS may cause these health effects is also not well understood. However, it is known that they do react with um, many receptors in the body, including a group of receptors known as peroxome proliferator activated receptors or PPARs. Now, these receptors regulate things like energy homeostasis, lipid and glucose metabolism, inflammation and metabolism and function of steroids. It's also thought that they alter genes which are involved in lipid transport and metabolism, um, which leads to their hepatic and metabolic adverse effects. As I mentioned, these chemicals are endocrine disruptors, so they impair thyroid hormone synthesis and signaling and disrupt sex hormone um, as well. And these chemicals are known to create oxidative stress in the body as well as impair mitochondrial function and impact glutathione synthesis. Now, there's insufficient evidence to assess whether they directly interact with DNA to cause damage. However, they may have other indirect mechanisms of action which can induce epigenetic alterations and influence cell proliferation and increase cancer risk. So how do we assess if someone is suffering from PFAS exposure? It's very difficult because exposure could have occurred at any point in life. So a thorough case history needs to be taken, and that's right back from the prenatal period if possible. A detailed family history needs to be taken as well, um, parents and grandparents, because it could be the grandparents' exposure that is having effect on the individual. A detailed dietary record needs to be undertaken as well as environmental and occupational exposures. We need to look at where they lived, where they went to school, their transportation methods, where they work. Physical examination is important to look for signs of possible exposure. So, for example, some of those metabolic and endocrine effects and also assess biomarkers that could indicate if they've had exposure. Blood tests are available for some of these PFAS compounds. However, they are not routinely recommended because blood levels are not predictive of health conditions. There's no well-defined normal range and they cannot tell you when an exposure occurred or if it will have a future health impact. These blood tests are most useful when they are part of a scientific investigation and can be compared to background or community values and where they can be monitored over time. So there may be other biomarkers that may be of more value, and in particular, definitely cholesterol and blood lipids, liver enzymes, inflammatory markers, thyroid hormone and function, reproductive hormones, gut function, organic acids, um, genetic testing. So what are the broad treatment strategies to treat PFAS exposure? Minimal research on interventions to accelerate the clearance of these chemicals from our bodies has been undertaken. So therefore, reducing exposure is the absolute best and most critical approach to improve health outcomes. And there is data to um, support this strategy and show that it is effective. Um, there's biomonitoring data from the United States, and it has shown that the average human blood levels of PFOA 
have declined by more than 60% and PFOS by more than 80% from 1999 to 2014 since they have been phased out of production in the US. So ways to avoid our exposure include um, avoiding Teflon or non-stick cookware. So looking for alternatives like stainless steel or cast iron cookware. Cut back on fast foods. Um, again, um, these chemicals are present in up to 50% of uh, fast food wrappers, particularly those that are grease resistant, and this is transferred through to the food. Avoid stain-resistant coatings and choose non-PFAS clothing and sports gear. Now, there is a database called PFAS Central where you can look up and find alternatives that do not contain PFAS for clothing, sports gear and other consumer goods. Choose personal care products without fluoro in the ingredients and you will be surprised where these chemicals are found, like things like dental floss, nail polish, sunscreen, hairspray, other personal care products. And again, there's a database called Skin Deep, which has different makeup and personal care products and their chemical composition, so you can look up and find PFAS-free alternatives. And given that dietary intake is the greatest source of PFAS exposure in most individuals, it is important to track your drinking water source. For example, there are some communities in Australia that are impacted by drinking water sources contaminated by firefighting foams. And in these areas, it's critical to um, look for an alternative drinking water source or use a water filter. And there's only certain types of filters that can um, filter out these chemicals. And these are activated carbon or reverse osmosis. You also need to check the source of food, especially seafood. Seafood intake has a high correlation with serum PFAS levels. Because these chemicals create oxidative stress in the um, body, it's important to address this as well. So in terms of reducing oxidative stress, choline, vitamin C and anthocyanin supplementation have been shown to be specifically beneficial in PFAS exposure. In a double-blind controlled trial, vitamin C was shown to eliminate the effects on insulin resistance and oxidative stress observed in PFAS exposure. And choline was shown to reduce both oxidative damage and alterations in hepatic lipid metabolism. While there's no direct evidence, you could consider other antioxidant nutrients such as vitamin E, zinc and selenium, and herbal antioxidants including curcumin, green tea and St Mary's thistle. And these herbal therapeutics have other activities that could mediate some of these metabolic effects of PFAS exposure. For example, they're anti-inflammatory, they um, lower cholesterol levels and can reduce insulin resistance and improve glucose homeostasis. St. Mary's thistle also protects the liver. And of course, um, good nutrition and diet is important for reducing oxidative stress. An anti-inflammatory type diet rich in plant foods and fibre and low in saturated fats is a good approach. This can reduce oxidative stress, replenish the microbiome, facilitate excretion of toxins, and mediate some of those cardiovascular and metabolic effects of PFAS exposure. Another treatment strategy is to enhance gastrointestinal elimination of these chemicals. Because they are secreted into bile and they are repeatedly reabsorbed and returned to the liver, 
um, the use of bile as a sequestrant has been suggested. Several studies have demonstrated that one type of these sequestrants called cholesteramine can increase fecal excretion of PFAS up to tenfold with a corresponding reduction in serum and hepatic PFAS levels. We need to support our microbiome to enhance the elimination of these chemicals and also to mediate the immune and metabolic effects of exposure. Certain PFAS have been found to affect diversity of gut bacteria, inducing notable changes in metabolites widely recognised to be associated with inflammation and metabolic dysfunction. Therefore, we need to support a healthy gut microbiome through good nutrition, such as a fibre-rich diet and the use of pre and probiotics. And several studies have found fibre-rich food intake associated with lower serum levels of PFAS. And this makes sense given that fibre decreases the absorption of bile acids, and we know that PFAS bind to these bile acids. A fourth treatment strategy is to support liver detoxification, and in particular, the production of glutathione. So supplementing uh, with uh, a glutathione precursor, N-acetylcysteine could be a treatment option, uh, or liposomal glutathione. Um, you could also use herbs that support the synthesis of glutathione, so things like curcumin, rosemary, bacopa. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of treatment strategies. It's important to assess the individual and address any other issues such as thyroid dysfunction, metabolic disorders, stress and reproductive issues. So in summary, PFAS are a class of chemicals that are present in hundreds of different products that are a significant health concern due to their persistence, bioaccumulation and potential toxicity. We don't fully understand their health effects and we really don't know how we can accelerate the clearance of these chemicals from the body. So reducing exposure is the best and most critical approach to improving our health outcomes. Thank you very much for tuning into Common Ground today and feel free to su subscribe to review this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.